I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. The year 2020 will be, for many, the most difficult year of their life. And yet, there will still be difficult years ahead. We are living through a pandemic. We are facing structural shifts in the global order. We are witnessing the decline of democracy, or at least its stagnation. We are grappling with climate change. The struggles we face are shaped by factors we control and factors we cannot control. Managing and solving big problems requires structural changes and action from those in positions of authority. However, we may not be without personal psychological tools to help us manage our own lives day to day. One such implement is resilience, a capacity to resist and to recover that can be developed, sharpened, and put to good use. The question is, can we build resilience in a crisis? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Kamal Minhas. She is an interviewer, entrepreneur, and resilience educator. She also hosts a podcast, which you can find on her website at kamal.com. The word resilience gets thrown around a lot, but there doesn't seem to be a single accepted use of the word either in academia where it's studied or in, in popular culture. So how do you define resilience? It's a great question. And I think it's actually a changing definition for me. So we often hear it's our ability to bounce back quickly. And I especially hear this in the space of entrepreneurship. And it can sometimes feel limiting because I think when we go through grief, trauma, any major setback in life, it'd be great to bounce back quickly. But the reality is that it takes a lot of time, energy and effort, regardless of your level of resilience, because of the impact of whatever hard thing you have faced and endured. So for me, resilience is really based on a foundation of things. I call them my roots of resilience. They are community, our relationship to work, our self-efficacy, so our belief in ourselves that we can come through hard things, wellness overall, our psychological and physical wellness, and those we surround ourselves with, so our community that's around us. And when we root into these five things, I genuinely, in my life experience and what the research has shown, it increases our ability to face difficult, challenging circumstances in life. And to have that belief, the self-efficacy is key, that belief in our own competence and feeling confident that we can move through things, that we can face the grief, the challenge, the hard thing head on and feel good about how we're doing that. So for me, the definition of resilience is really, do you believe that you can face hard things, that you can rise through hard things. And it's a very simplified definition, but it's one that suited me and those I've worked with very well. So it isn't as if there are necessarily, or maybe there are stages to it, but there are aspects. And I'm curious as to how it unfolds and especially whether it's inherently forward looking or present looking or whether there's some retrospective element to it. Because I think during my PhD, a colleague said to me one day, you know, you're really good at bouncing back from things. And I thought to myself, I'd never really thought of myself as bouncing back from things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd never really thought of myself as resilient. I just thought of, okay, I'm going to get up today and go on with my life. And I've kept that thought for years. And I keep going back to it and thinking, in retrospect, I find myself to have been resilient because I faced some extraordinarily difficult times. But I couldn't really identify the nature of that resiliency at the time. It's only in retrospect that I can understand it. So I'm curious as to what degree this is about stages and to what degree it's about aspects. I'm very much in the aspect camp because I think stages come in in terms of as we grow, you know, 
when we think of our earliest traumas or the hard things that we've come through or faced, for some of us, it's really early. Like I can think back to growing up in an alcoholic household or an abusive household. And when I look at how me and my five siblings, I grew up in a conjoined family. I am My background is Punjabi. I'm from an Indian family. So I grew up with my mom, my dad, my aunt, and my uncle all in the same household, two separate families under one roof. So five of us kids, my three cousins, my brother, and I. Resiliency was something that we all built in different ways because of the early experiences we had with different types of trauma. And so when I think of stages, it's not like, oh, if you do this and it'll naturally lead you into this part of your resiliency. Right. Actually, just the consistency or like how many of those very difficult experiences you've moved through in your life. Different aspects of the research that I've read really come back to um, this concept of growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And so that is something that we can also develop over time. It's when we have challenging experiences, when we think of our reaction or response to them, is it one where we believe I can figure this out or this defines me? Are we stuck in our shame and our belief that we are not good? Those stories that can become ingrained in us at a young age, what do those look like? And in one household where we all went through somewhat similar experiences, me and my four siblings have very different mechanisms when it comes to our resiliency. So I wouldn't call it stages, but when it comes back to these roots of resilience, these are really the areas of our lives, specifically wellness and our wellness practices when it comes to, you know, psychological support. And then also what do we have in place on a day-to-day basis when it's habits and routines that support us in moving through? Like you shared, when you wake up, you say, okay, how am I going to face this day? Sometimes if we don't have those routines in place on a day-to-day basis, it makes it that much harder for us to wake up and know how to face the day when the day is empty and the trauma is so present. And I think you might be able to relate to this as well when you think of the challenges that you've also come through. Aspects to resiliency versus stages is definitely the camp that what the research has shown me I am in. So I was thinking when you were going through the the aspects earlier, so, you know, several years ago, I moved back from British Columbia where I was doing my PhD back home to Peterborough, where everyone in my family was ill. And I mean, everybody. My mother was ill. My father was ill. My stepmother was ill. My grandmother was ill. So I moved back to manage that and to help. My father ended up dying during that period of time. And so then there was the process of managing both grief, but also the bureaucracy of death. And I remember at the time thinking, how do you do this? You're doing a PhD, everyone is ill, and, you know, there's a death. And I remember I would get up in the morning, I'd go work on my PhD at a library for two or three hours, and then I would go and just do things, you know, with a list. <laughs> You've got to mm-hmm. do things. You've got to manage things. And then I'd have some time to go and process things, and that's it. But I found that having that process and having those goals, some of them quite small, and having that routine during that period of crisis was essential to both, you know, surviving, but also to accomplishing something. And that's actually what the research shows us. There was a study that was done post 9-11 with people who were not primarily affected by the terrorist attacks, but who were in New York at that time. And when it comes to this concept of self-efficacy, the reason I reinforce it so much is because task-based planning is within the research, one of the critical pillars to coming through difficult times and your experience with the lists that you made every day, it makes every day manageable. 
And even the littlest things like making your bed in the morning in the face of the difficult things in your life, it gives you that sense of accomplishment, which then you can turn into a snowball of different things that you can tackle each day. And then at the end of the day, regardless of the grief or the different pieces that you're still experiencing, you have this subset in you that is like, wow, I accomplished things that was enough for today. And then you can come back to the emotions and the grief, but it also helps you compartmentalize, which is also an important part of the process, as I'm sure you can also attest to from that period of time. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, though, that there were deep inequities, both our capacity and our opportunity to do such a thing. Right. And so I'm thinking about this now, both retrospectively, but in the context of the pandemic, of of the climate crisis and, and the several overlapping crises that we face together and the many that we face individually, that I was able to manage those things because I had a skill set, I had a network, I had access to resources. So I was going through an extraordinarily difficult time, but I was going through it with support and with resources and skills, but not everybody is in that position. So I wonder to what degree it's broadly applicable and to what degree there are folks who just don't have the opportunity to practice resilience because they're facing obstacles that they can't possibly overcome. And I think that what's really interesting about that is there's a couple aspects to this that I'd like to dive into. And one being social supports are huge. Like resilient societies are based on what access you have to social support. So if we look in the Canadian and the U.S. context right now in light of COVID and the pandemic, when we look at the CERB support and how quickly it was deployed, when we look at small businesses and access to loans, when we look at our even access to universal health care, when I think back to one of like my breaking points in my life, I was living in Brooklyn, building a startup and woke up one morning and couldn't see out of my left eye and found out later that I had something called optic neuritis, which in 60% of cases is linked to multiple sclerosis, 40% it's an anomaly. Had I stayed in the U.S. to take care of my medical care, it would have been tens of thousands of dollars. Um, But I was still under OHIP because I was going back and forth between Brooklyn and Ontario. So my permanent address was still Canada. So we took an eight hour drive, moved us back, and I got access to universal health care. I did pay and go to the Quebec side for an accelerated MRI, and that's a privilege. But without those social supports, it is very hard for individuals to practice resiliency or for us to have community resilience. So I think there will be a lot of information that we get on the fallout from this when we look at countries and their responses during COVID and how that supports us societally and the impact that that has on this widening gap between those who are completely marginalized, specifically in the United States. And it hurts my mind to think about There's a Center for Resiliency at the University of Guelph, I believe. And the head researcher, he wrote an article for the Globe and Mail specifically about this saying, you know, when we look at the concepts of American individualism, a lot of the wellness space or the self-development space has evolved because of potentially lack of access to adequate health care. So you have this concept of we can take care of ourselves. I, I don't need therapy. I can do it through personal development books and all these different things. When at the end of the day, it actually comes back to what is your government doing for you? What do you have access to in your local communities? And how is that supporting you and moving you forward? That being said, I also have this perspective of being 
a child of immigrants, seeing what my parents' lives were like in India, growing up in rural villages, little access to financial support, different things. And resiliency still comes back to very simple concepts. Because if you think of a village lifestyle, you are very close to your neighbors. You as a culture and community are very cohesive. And what the research also shows us for marginalized or racialized communities, specifically the study I'm thinking about is about African-American communities, is one of the biggest indicators of resilience, even when faced with poverty or different aspects from a financial or um, social support perspective, is connection to our identity and culture. So if you're in a marginalized, more poverty-ridden space community, and I'm thinking of it from a racialized perspective in this instance, and you are very well connected to whether it's your church, your cultural community center, your family, your close community of support, and your identity and pride of your culture is reinforced, your resiliency shoots up significantly. And so you have these two poles where the government supports what you're getting from in terms of social supports significantly increases your resiliency. And then you have the other aspect where even in spaces that we might, from a Western perspective, think, how can someone in that space be resilient? It's like, actually, they can be really resilient because mm. it's very simple things like task-based planning. You don't necessarily need to be taught in institutions. You learn that from the people around you and how your community and society operates or the values of community, the values of taking care of yourself. These are things that are not necessarily learned in institutions. In fact, in the Western way, some of these things are unlearned in institutions. Look at more racialized perspectives, especially like if I look at Indian culture, some of these things are deeply valued from a cultural perspective and have actually been removed through colonization and through institutionalization of education from our communities. Those are my thoughts on that piece, because it is so important for us to say that individualism isn't the way when it comes to resiliency, but there are things we can do every day as individuals that support us, but that government support and social support is critical to creating truly resilient societies. It strikes me then that our politics works against us in a lot of ways. I mean, the way that we design cities, the way that we design roads, transportation networks, the way that we underfund social program, the way that we regulate and develop policies on real estate, that these things actually work against, in many cases, community building, right? I mean, I think about, you know, the times when I, for instance, felt most connected to my community and was happiest. It was when I could be close to a handful of people I really liked and could get around to see others. And everyone had sort of a base. You didn't have a ton of money, but we had enough, you know, to enjoy day to day. And we felt there was some general supports that uh, we weren't super overworked, but we had work that was meaningful. But it seems like a lot of the social economic policies that we've adopted work against this. And I wonder, you know, if we were going to facilitate building resilience, whether or not our policy agenda would look a lot different. It would. I absolutely think it would. And when we think of a you know, Canada and our social supports on the scale of what we see globally, there's still so much more that can be done if it was a priority in a political sense. And I am born and raised in Alberta from Grand Prairie, Alberta. I'm now in Ontario, in Ottawa, to my chagrin. But um, <laughs> I grew up in a very rural um, city as one of, a, you know, a handful of racialized people. But what I'm seeing in terms of 
the dismantling of the education system and the lack of supports that are happening for teachers specifically in Alberta right now under the Kenny government, it is deeply disheartening. The dismantling that has happened for specifically their early childhood education programs when it comes to children growing up with autism and other disabilities. It is deeply disheartening because the families that require that support that also like the resiliency can be completely dismantled in a society if a government does not prioritize specifically the most marginalized, but also like you shared, this concept of connection and community together. And if we think of outputs, and if you want to talk from a GDP perspective or different things from a capitalistic framework, if resiliency was prioritized, your workforce would be so much more capable and able to output at certain levels or to provide certain services and create that sort of financial and economic output that we desire as countries. However, we forget that we think it's actually an afterthought and that economics is the priority. But if both are equally supported, I genuinely believe, and some research does support, that we would be much better off economically. That's always my last go-to when I'm having these market-based arguments, is that first I argue against the sort of market conceptions in and of themselves and what they do to people. And then I say, you're even wrong on your own terms, right? Right. It's stunning to me that that orthodoxy is so entrenched that capitalists often can't see that. But I want to shift to the moment and to this crisis, the pandemic. And I I suppose we could talk about resiliency in in the context of many different crises. And we can talk about it in the context of coming crises and, and, and overlapping crises, you know, climate change and shift in global order and inequality. But I'm thinking of the pandemic because this, for many people, will be the worst year of their life for among very close to one of the worst years of their lives. How do you build or practice resiliency in a moment like this, in such an extraordinary moment? It's a big question. And I will offer a simple answer in this moment, and it is to take it day by day. It's strange because the worst year of my life was 2016, 2017. And it was when I had to transform and completely overhaul my own life and focus on these different roots of resilience because almost everything was taken from me from a physical perspective. When you're faced with a neurological illness and you love your brain, like this conversation three years ago, I couldn't hold a conversation with more than one person, let alone use all my words. Or I thought cognitively that I was no longer going to be able to take stages to do the work that I want to do in the world to have conversations like this. And so when you reckon with your own mortality in that way, things become very clear and things become very simple. And so when we're facing a pandemic of this sort, and it might feel trivializing, and I do not mean for it to come across that way at all, but the simplicity of our days or the things that we can root into every day, are you able to do the one thing to take care of yourself? Are you able to make that to-do list for you today that includes your CERB application or that includes the job applications you're trying to put out or that includes one thing as a parent? I'm not a parent, so I can't even speak to what quarantine's been like for parents. Um, But when I think of the resiliency of the parents who have young kids and who are trying to manage so many things, the ones who share with me like what's rooting them and taking most care of them is that one strong boundary in their day where they just get that 15 or 20 minutes to themselves or just a little bit of time to feel like I can get reorganized, reset myself, and then push go again. 
And so resiliency for me right now and how it looks in my days specifically, it comes back to those small moments and those small choices every day in terms of prioritizing ourselves in the face of chaos. Because I don't think there's one person out there who could say that if they didn't take that moment for mindfulness or that moment to just take that deep breath and reset and remake that list or call that one person in their life that they need support from, that it doesn't support their mindset in approaching the day in a better way. So that's a very simplified answer to a very big question. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. And it seems like, I mean, especially in the context of those who are trying to pursue their careers, do their jobs and raise children, that this is where both state support and a shift in social expectations seems critical. We all have to give one another a break than what we expect from each other right now. Mm-hmm. And that includes the marketplace and that the state ought to be taking extraordinary measures to say, okay, something must be done to accommodate for that, whether or not it's social transfers or, you know, figuring out a plan to get kids back in school and so on and so forth, right? I mean, so as not to stretch those expectations to the raking point. I'm not a parent either. I cannot imagine what that is like. Yeah. Um, all I can do is is sort of sympathize and join calls for the state to do something about it and individuals to shift their expectations accordingly. And I would also say here that empathy-based leadership is a big, it's so critical right now. Like I've seen cases of women who have been fired because they can't not have their children in meetings with them because they're single parent households. And when I think of the type of person who would fire that employee, it makes me upset (laughs) as a human being. They ought to be locked up. (laughs) Yes, because when we think of this, like it's gone on for far too long that leadership that completely dehumanizes employees and folks in society, like that has been our operating principles is disgusting to me. And I say that as someone who experienced gaslighting in the workplace, whose work has been, you know, taken from me, like who has experienced not great things in traditional workspaces as a marginalized person. And if leaders took it upon themselves to deal with their own emotional lack of competency or managers who shouldn't be managers would just vocalize that maybe I'm not in the right role. It takes a lot of personal emotional intelligence and just self-reflection to come to these places. But a lot of people who are managing people in the world right now should not be. And when I think of it from a resiliency perspective, if there was more leaders who prioritized empathy, who really understood how to manage other humans, we are not machines workplaces would be a lot better. And I also think even within the political realm, there would be a significant shift. But it is asking a lot of people to do that self-reflection. And I also think that's why the pandemic has been so hard for people is because they haven't been left alone with themselves in this way ever. And so there's a lot of reckoning that's happening. And it's also the patriarchy at work, isn't it? I mean, we see that the effects of what you're talking about are disproportionately borne by women, but you know, the economic effects, the people who are getting fired, the people who are doing the child work, the people who are making less money and so on. So getting their hours cut, whatever it might be, the people who are managing them, who I would imagine predominantly the problem mm-hmm. being men, that this is a reflection of, of the patriarchy as well. So, I mean, I say that by way of saying that while we want to build and expect resiliency while we require it to survive and to even thrive eventually there are these structural barriers that make it an awful lot more difficult 
white supremacy would be one of them too. But in this case, I'm thinking specific of patriarchy. Yes, white supremacy and patriarchy, two of the folks that we just need to like take out of the house. Let's throw them out in the trash. I and mean, that gets thrown around a, a lot. Generations. <laughs> and that stuff gets thrown around a lot. And I know that there's a lot of eye rolling that happens when people talk about colonialism and, and white supremacy and, and patriarchy, but they are noted tangible structures that we see operating starkly in moments like this. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to those folks who are eye rolling is you clearly were not paying attention in the month of June. Because when I think of it from a resiliency perspective, when I think of Black communities and Indigenous peoples and the reality of the fear and the way that walking through the world is for our Black and Indigenous friends, folks in our lives, it is astounding that people would still belittle that experience and their experiences and the truth of white supremacy and what has happened from removing, again, cultural identity practices, norms, beliefs, connection from generations of peoples, and then expecting them to be resilient, expecting them to show up in society in a specific way, instead of working as so many communities are to reclaim the truth of their identities, the truth of their community, the truth of their language, all these different pieces. And I get encouraged when I see the type of coming together that has been happening online specifically because we're all in our homes. So TikTok and Instagram have informed me insanely about the type of community connections that are happening in the BLM movement and for Indigenous peoples um, and other marginalized communities. But I am encouraged because us being able to speak our truth more fully and have it be truly understood and having white folks sort of pass the mic and, you know, move out of the way so that more of these stories can be shared. Like if we want to really research resiliency, which if you look into the research around resiliency in racialized communities, you'd be shocked to see how little there is. And that shocks me because from a resiliency perspective, racialized communities, I think, would show us exemplary resiliency and give us even more data about what it means to be resilient. But yeah, these things that folks maybe still continue to roll their eyes at, I think it's also a generational gap because when I talk about resiliency or different hard things that millennials or Gen Z might be facing or the young side of the boomers might be facing, a lot of people are like, that's not hard. Like when I think of my parents and their experience and what they've grown up and gone through, sometimes they just like roll their eyes when I talk about the hard things that I'm facing. (laughs) And other times they totally get it because, you know, they've walked me through my hard seasons with physical illness and all these things, but it is generational as well. So I hope we stop eye rolling and genuinely take these pieces more seriously. You mentioned the internet and social media, which when I was originally thinking about this episode with my producer and the co-producer, we were thinking about social media exclusively and then we sort of broadened it. But it's hard not to think about and talk about what we've been thinking and talking about without coming back to the internet because it is central to our lives. It will be central to our lives for the future. And it is extraordinarily central right now. And that comes with liabilities and it comes with benefits. I'm curious about the way that social media in particular, and the internet more generally, is playing into our capacity to be resilient right now. Because it seems to me from the community perspective, it's obviously essential. And we've seen, you know, both 
getting in touch with folks for recreation, but also things like mutual aid and solidarity movements facilitating these things. So I wonder how you're thinking about the role of social media in resiliency at this moment. I think it's absolutely critical. I was talking to my cousin about this who lives in Dawson Creek, British Columbia, which is like a small town. And the capacity that social media and the internet provide us to connect with communities like us, even when we're in remote spaces, which is also why this conversation about bringing, you know, internet to remote communities that don't have it, that are specifically indigenous is so critical as well, alongside clean water is really helpful because those who might not have access to folks who look like them, sound like them, believe the same things as them, the internet democratizes that. And I think that's also why, you know, part of the conversation on TikTok around Trump wanting to ban TikTok in the US is because it cannot be controlled in the same way. And I mean, that sounds kind of ironic to be said, because obviously there's a lot of the data issues around it being Chinese created. But from a perspective of how the Cambridge Analytica aspect of things rolled out in the States with Facebook ads, specifically in Twitter, TikTok is not able to be leveraged in that same way for political purposes. So that democratization of stories access, and again, there was also shadow banning on TikTok around the Black Lives Matter movement. So it's this double-edged sword, but that democratization is so supportive, specifically of marginalized communities and in building that resiliency because we can see and share about each other and support each other in really meaningful ways. And the other side of it, though, is that it creates silos. So it can actually counter resiliency because some folks who are choosing not to see beyond their world can continue to not see beyond their world. So you can choose to be in your silo or you can choose to expand your silo. And again, that comes back to that growth mindset conversation. And there are some folks who are just very resistant to that folks who are racist, folks who just want to stay within their realm of things. But from a community building perspective, I would be in the camp that says that social media and the internet has increased our resiliency right now, especially with access to mental health resources. There's a democratization around mental health that's happening through Instagram from an intersectional perspective because you're having more racialized mental health professionals create spaces on the internet where, for example, children of immigrants can come together about our shared experiences. And in a culture where mental health is stigmatized, it is now being destigmatized on these platforms and creating safe spaces for us to deal with our mental health issues and challenges in a safe and secure way that is private. So I, being a millennial who was told for so much of my life, why are you sharing so much on the internet? Like, this is not great, you know, <laughs> telling me how I'm living my life is so wrong. And then we see Gen Z just coming up and owning the internet and platforms as they are. I'm here to say I love the internet and I think it is a key part of my resiliency. And that's the reason I can live in carp in the middle of the countryside and still be able to affect as much change as I do through my work online. You know, it's funny. It seems to me that there's an interesting tension with Instagram because it is notoriously in some instances, an offender when it comes to mental health. It's the visual representation of the ideal X, Y, or Z that you're constantly bombarded with. That happens elsewhere too, but it's Instagram is a photo medium. And so it tends to be, I think, more pronounced there. But like you said, there is this coordination happening as well. One of the things I found useful is the sort of converse, which is I like sharing lots of different aspects of my personal life online, including when I wake up like this morning and have a cup of ice cream for breakfast. I love it. 
And, you know, I, I mean, I see other people like that, including serious people and accomplished people who kind of look like they don't have their shit together or they're just figuring it out as they go. And I think back to this Guardian article from a few years ago, everybody's just winging it all the time. To the extent that it connects us to or exposes us to other people who are great people, but just figuring it out, that helps us get on with our days because we recognize there are other people out there just like us. Absolutely. And I think in quarantine more than ever, you can't have these fake influencers touting all their brands and things like that because they're just at home. Right. So there's like that also leveling of the playing field that's happened. And I would also say this is like with careful curation of how we are using social media. And I would say this is something that I would encourage parents to just be really good about with their kids is like I follow accounts that are supportive and help me feel good. But that is an active choice that I've made in terms of how I'm curating that space. And we get to be specific in particular about who we follow and why we follow them. So if there is accounts, and this sounds, again, very simple, but if there are accounts that you're following that make you feel bad about yourself, you don't have to follow them unless the reasons they're making you feel bad about yourself are actually things that are supportive in your life that you just know you're not doing. Right. Um, but I think it's important to just constantly be critical of why we're using things. Because again, my screen time is up to like eight to nine hours a day right now. That's not necessarily supportive of the lifestyle I want to be living, but I'm also still mostly in quarantine. So this is also a part of the resiliency conversation is it ebbs and flows. So with the habits we want to have every day, like I'm not in my morning routine every single day, but I know some days I need it more than others. And I'm going to be super committed to it on those days. But it's enabling ourselves to face this roller coaster while knowing that we have the supports and systems in place for us to lean on when things go really awry, which has happened a lot for me in quarantine. <laughs> right. And again, I think and this is another tension in with social media, because I think what we're talking about right here is connecting and coordinating communities. And, you know, for every one of the challenges of, for instance, especially YouTube, is that it serves as a vehicle to coordinate nefarious types and dangerous types, as well as those who are doing good. And I would imagine most social media are like that. And so, again, there's this other tension here. But it seems to me like what we're circling around is this idea that it's a tool that can be used well or, or used poorly. But we have to make a conscious decision about how we're going to use it. That right. is part of our experience with resiliency, because I'm sure you've gone through the black hole of scrolling where you're just like, oh, yes. I don't know why I'm still doing this. I'm not feeling good about this. And like everything's triggering me right now. And to have the mental fortitude and the track record with yourself and enough self-trust and capacity built up to be like, okay, I'm going to stop. Or if you're not going to stop to just like own that you're not stopping is really helpful. But that is, again, it's not a stage of building resiliency. It's just like over time, you can build that self-trust to know that you're going to choose the thing that is actually supportive of you and your well-being and mental well-being or that's going to take you down the path of no return, which is that deep, dark scroll. <laughs> right, where nobody wants to go. A good rule of search engines is, you know, never go too far into the search <laughs> results. You know, I mean, I, nobody really does, but you probably shouldn't. And I feel like the scrolling is the same thing. If you're scrolling for more than a couple of seconds, then you're probably looking for trouble. You know, I don't, I don't. And I, I found I, social media is, is tricky for me because it both gives me an opportunity to connect with people, but exacerbates parts of my character that I don't care for, which is mm. sort of like, I remember, you know, in the early days of Twitter, paying very close attention to followers. And mm. I eventually had to just stop looking at the number. To this day, I don't know 
how many people I follow or how many people follow me and I don't want to know. You know, in social unit, you're supposed to track your metrics really closely if you want to be successful. I can't do that because it will drive me bonkers. Absolutely. And, and, I, and that's something I learned about myself, right? And part of me getting through my job as a writer and a commentator and, a, and so on and so forth, you might say, well, you got to pay attention to that stuff. If I'm going to be resilient, yeah, then I can't go into that stuff. And that's a huge part of just like self-knowledge and knowing what makes us tick and what we can handle and what we can't. And I'm the same way. I live in the internet. My job is the internet. So it can become a deep, dark hole. And I think that in the past, it used to be more. And again, as I get older, I am building that healthier relationship with platforms. But it takes time. And that's something that I worry about with this younger generation is that obsession or that, you know, validation that can come it reminds me of like a black mirror episode (laughs) where we're just like in this dystopian space where you know that is the full validation of a person's value and we know that to not be true and that's part of like leaning into resiliency is coming back to the human aspects of what makes us who we are and what makes us feel good and what makes us understand ourselves in a way where we can not only be more supportive to ourselves but to those around us So if we think of the things in our lives as tools to help us continue to move towards that ideal, you know, version of ourselves that we want to be like, it's again, that self-efficacy task-based planning, you can imagine, use that goal of who you want to become as that benchmark for you to get there, but keep rooting it in human aspects versus the tools or the tech that we use, I think is really helpful. You do work on this professionally, and I would encourage people to look up your work, to look up your website. Uh, Kamal.com and and to look into the programming that you offer. So don't give away the store. I want to close on a look at how an individual who's saying, I want to build resiliency. I want to do better. I want to improve my chances of, you know, making the day count as best I can. Where would they start? If someone's listening to this and says, okay, I want to start somewhere. Where do they start? Uh, Obviously, other than visiting your website. (laughs) Yes. Right. Check me out. Komal.com. K-O-M-A-L.com. Um, I did an episode on my podcast around self-coaching. And I think that so often we've been conditioned to think that we need to look externally to find answers for what we need to do next. When I actually think it's being asked the right questions. So I love conversation. I am an interviewer. That's my superpower. I love talking to people. I'm obsessed with good questions. And If you can create a list of questions for yourself rooted around asking yourself, what is making me feel shitty right now? Like, what are the things that are depleting me that don't serve me every day? And then making a list of the counterpoints to those things that are depleting you. So whether it is the deep, dark scroll, it's like, okay, so what options do I have of activities I can do instead of scrolling? And it's those micro changes throughout the day that can become supportive to your days feeling better, lighter, and more full. And I will say this too, a big aspect of my resiliency is therapy. Sure. (laughs) My therapist has been so insanely helpful for me during quarantine. And for those who are racialized folks who are listening, finding folks who are decolonizing or actively decolonizing their practices of therapy My therapist is a white woman, but she is someone who has consciously learned about how to work with children of immigrants, how to work with marginalized communities, how to name her own privileges as a white woman. And that has been super supportive for me in me maintaining a high resiliency during quarantine. 
But it really is like also make a list of habits for yourself or a routine to start your day. Truly, that has been the biggest game changer, being in the same four walls day after day. If I can root into that morning routine, which for me is meditation, journaling, movement. So I move for 30 minutes every day and then diving into my day. I don't have bad days when I do that. And if they are bad, they're not as bad as they could be without those habits and those supportive habits. So I would suggest taking time to reflect on the things that suck in your day right now, Mm -hmm. finding counterpoints to that, exploring what supportive mental health looks like for you, whether it's therapy, coaching, whatever that might look like, a good podcast, and then figuring out a morning routine that serves you well. Because again, this task-based planning, this concept of self-advocacy is really key to building our resiliency. And we are in control of that piece of it outside of, again, the macro conversations we had around what supports us as well. So that's what I would suggest. Do you on top of that have a sort of self-permissive comfort that you Mm -hmm. indulge in? And I'll disclose first by way of fairness. I've got a bunch because I'm... (laughs) Because I, what have I got to lose? But I, but one I of them is, so. <laughs> just, I have no problem streaming television or films for many hours at a time, provided I've met my other goals yes. uh, for the day. But I also am, I think, something like 1,300 hours into uh, Civilization Six. Wow. Which is a lot. I mean, someone pointed out to me that that's something like a third of a year. And <laughs> But my response to that is, oh, think of all you could have done in that time if you didn't play. And my response is, if I didn't play, I couldn't have done the things that I did. Yes. So, okay. My like self-permissive things would be, so I love work. That's kind of a bit of my addiction. And I think it kind of happened just growing up in the household that I did. I'll get to the bad ones after, but I'm starting with this one. At the end of the day, part of my work as well is art. So I create digital art. And so I let myself just like watch trash TV and make my art on my iPad so that I don't feel bad about continuing to work, but also I get to watch my trash TV. But simultaneously, my husband is also a gamer. And I also want to give shout out to gamers during quarantine because I feel like gamers also get a lot of flack, but the community aspect to gaming is so supportive for folks and their mental health. And my husband and my husband's cousin, he lives with us as well. And they game, they play Call of Duty, they play WoW, all of the things. I bought my husband a really great gaming laptop for his birthday at the beginning of quarantine because I was like, if we're going to be doing this, I need you to be in the same room as me while I'm doing my trash TV art making. And you can play your game, but we can be on the same couch. So we can still have conversation and you can do your activity. I can do mine. And then the other one would be, I am a fan of chips and Twizzlers. Together? Yeah. You can have a Twizzler in between a handful of chips. It's like the perfect snack combo. So those are my things. But I am also a night owl. So that's another vice of mine. I'm not a morning person. And in quarantine, I've really found a good timing for me, which is like a 9 a.m. wake up and a 1.30 go to bed. But these are like my vices. But if I do my morning routine every day, my vices are allowed. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's entirely reasonable. And I want to close on the video game point because Mm -hmm. it's possible that I'm recording this while wearing a gaming headset (laughs) as my... the smartest things because the mic's right there and your hands are free to clickety-click-click, as I say to my husband. Oh, it's way worse than that. We've got a fancy microphone to record for good audio quality, but the gaming headset is how I do my audio because it's wireless and it's got a little dongle you can plug in and it's designed for good sound. Yes. And yeah, that's but, why you sound so great and you're at and home. Exactly. And 
I won't name the company because I'm not here shilling, but it's... it's but a, wait, I am okay. curious. What is your mic? Oh, the mic is... I don't know. The headset is Logitech. I mean, okay. of course it is, right? Anyone yeah. could have guessed that. Please, Logitech, do not send me anything. I can't accept <laughs> nonsense. But the gaming aspect is so critical because it is, for me right now, I'm high risk for COVID because of a lung thing. So I've been inside since March. And when I say I've been inside since March, I have really been inside since March. And the gaming aspect connects me to a couple of my very close friends and a few others as well. And we've been playing Divinity 2 and we've been playing Don't Starve Together and we've been playing Civ and a few other things. And it creates a community and a connection that is always important, but now so extraordinarily important. And I think when people think of video games, they miss that aspect, that that is a form of connection and a form of resiliency. Of course, anything can become a problem, too much of any good thing. It's the dose that matters, but it's so significant and transformative that I think it's often ignored or dismissed, but I, I cannot stress enough how important it's been for me to get lost in that time with my friends. Absolutely. And I also would say that like a significant amount of like the most successful men I know in my life are gamers. And I think it's like there's a relaxation aspect, but there's also like these are folks that you've grown up with that you've been playing with for years. So when COVID started, I was struggling because I didn't have connection to my community in the way that I wanted to. So then I actively scheduled weekly touch bases with my two best friends. And then every other week, I created a mastermind group of other women of color, female entrepreneurs for me to connect with. But until I did that, I would like watch my husband play and he'd be like, you know, it's so interesting. What COVID's showing me is like gaming is so supportive of this reality because I'd still talk to my friends every day. We still have a good time and I can turn my brain off and relax after a really intense day of work. He's a policy analyst at Enercan. And I'm super supportive of that. And I think like for parents who are listening or whatever, who might be worried about their sons or their daughters, you know, gaming so much, like you shared, it's everything in moderation. Although sometimes you might want to go over because a new game drops, like my husband books a day off when a new game drops and we're all aware of it. But the less shame there is around it as well, the more supportive it can end up being for a person. If I look at my husband and my cousin and other folks who I know who game, 100% impacts their resiliency just from a community aspect and a relaxation aspect. And the value for money can't be beat. I got to say, if you think of amortized (laughs) value. My husband said this to me the other day because he's like, I paid like $200 for the one thing in this game. And look, I've been playing it for 15 years. And I'm like, I didn't say anything. Like, it's true. I mean, again, I, I think of Civ Six, and I might be pushing a little bit off topic now, but I've got nowhere to go. And yeah, we're exactly. all captive right now. I don't know how much civilization cost me. Maybe 150 bucks by now with all the additional stuff. You know, imagine getting a 1,500 hours of entertainment for 150 bucks. You can't get that from anything else. Nothing. Even if you throw in the cost of the electricity and the cost of the computer, you're talking pennies on the hour. <laughs> yes. I love this because this is truly a conversation I have both with my husband and my cousin at length. And I think they're a lot of like, people do. My husband's always like, you don't mind that I'm just like sitting here gaming? I'm like, I'm literally like watching trash TV. Do you mind that my trash TV's on in the background? I'm watching Indian matchmaking. He's like, I don't care. And I'm like, perfect. This is why we married each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, the snobs, well, what about reading and so on? As if that's mutually exclusive, but also like. Is reading a trashy book better than watching trashy television or playing video game? I think it isn't. There's this weird prejudice that books are inherently good and everything else is inherently less good. But like, come on, there's just no evidence to support that. 
And also, I just feel like we should just let people live. If we just let people do more of what made them feel good to a point, you know, obviously, like you said, anything in excess is insane. But if we just let people like what they like and do what they do without trying to make people feel worse or like bad about who they are and why they like things, like wouldn't we all just be better humans? We would. And we'd be more resilient. 100%. This is what I'm about. Well, I'm glad we were able to bring it back around in the end. (laughs) (laughs) And I thank everyone for staying on the train with us right to the last stop. Facts. (laughs) First of all, my thanks to you for joining me today. So happy to have been able to. And I love this conversation. We, We hit a lot. We made it all over the place. As uh, there's a lot of added value there, I think. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And thanks, as always, to everyone who's listened. And you're welcome for the additional content. Once again, no additional charge on account of this podcast is free <laughs> anyway. And I hope that, first of all, this has been a useful podcast for folks listening. I think it has. But also, you know, this is an opportunity to give yourself permission for you know not only some self-introspection, but also to enjoy parts of your life that maybe you've been guilty about just go enjoy them and pick up a game and let loose and that brings us to the end for today and we will join you again in a couple weeks as we talk about something that probably has less to do with video games but is nonetheless still important thanks for listening (laughs) 